Welcome to another episode of Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yeagley. Well, we are continuing with our discussion on the Winter Postal. We are in the Gospel reading for the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, The first Sunday in Advent in, in Luther's day was Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9. But he spends almost all of his time talking just about verse 5. Verse 5 is the reference that Matthew makes to the prophecy from Zechariah. Matthew records the words from Zechariah with uh, slight abbreviations of words. Not that he abbreviates a word, but he leaves out some words. Here's how Matthew reads it. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a beast of burden. And so what what Luther does here is he starts walking through this, this prophecy or this portion of scripture practically word by word. So we we you know we spent Luther spent some time going through um, the, the word your and then the second to you and then the king and so forth. And we've been going and he just finished up we, in the last episode. We just finished up the section where uh, Luther uses the word gentle, I think. Mm-hmm. ESV says humble, um, but it's essentially the same thing. And we spent so that's where we ended up. So we're going to pick it up again. Um, and this next section is where he talks about the changes Matthew made to the, the, from, from the original reading from Zechariah. So we're, we're going to start getting into how did Matthew alter Scripture? Why did he do it? Why does Luther, what, does, what does Luther get out of these changes? And what can we learn from, from these changes about Christ? So one of the things that Zechariah starts with is a phrase, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And how does Matthew record it? Say to the daughter of Zion. So the words rejoice greatly and shout aloud, those are not included by Matthew's reference to this text from Zechariah. And the reference of say to the daughter of Zion, as simple as Matthew makes it, places the joy found in the exhortation and the shouting when Zechariah says, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, and Matthew just records say to It's speaking to the power of the word of God to bring the joy, the power of the word of God to bring the shout that Matthew doesn't include the word rejoice and doesn't include the word shout because Matthew is trusting in the humbleness of the proclamation of the word to bring the joy and to bring the shout. So there are four changes that Luther points out in all of this uh, from, from Zechariah to Matthew. The first one was the abbreviated opening. The second one is that Luther notices that Matthew leaves out righteous and having salvation. The third one is the change from poor to gentle. And then the fourth one is the Luther points out that there, Matthew changed it from full of the donkey to full of a beast of burden. And so Luther is going to spend a little bit of time talking through each one of these four changes. 
And the more significant, I think, for me as a preacher, the way he talks about these changes will be in the third part of his postal when he describes the secret meaning. But So he goes through each one of these changes once on kind of just a textual, here's what the change is and here's what it is inside the text. And then in our next episode, we'll talk about the secret meaning. And that's where he starts to show the allegory of all of it. Yeah, that secret meaning is actually, I've actually, I have very mixed emotions about the secret meaning portion because, of course, we know the history of allegory and Christian preaching, which it has taken Christian theology really far off into the very weeds. Very speculative. Very speculative. Uh, on the he doesn't other, go there right away, though. Right, right. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, I know in my own personal Christian development, I have found allegory. When, when, when preachers or writers have used allegory, it really does help me remember. Yeah. And, and it helps me remember the point. To, to have some sort of picture that is associated with this, that it's representing. And so I have this mixed, this mixed emotion. So we'll get into all that later. Let's, let's get back into these four points that Luther wants to talk about. The first thing he does is he explains why this kind of abbreviation is allowable. He explains that the evangelists are not compelled to quote the prophet's words exactly, directing us instead to the meaning of the scripture, the fulfillment of how these words are coming about in the life of Christ. And Luther trusts in the inspiration of scripture. And he also recognizes that when the New Testament, it is utilizing the Old Testament, there doesn't have to be a word for word inclusion of the Old Testament passage into the New Testament. His audience in the New Testament, Matthew's audience, is going to be aware of Zechariah 9.9. And they might even be aware of what words he's leaving out. The, the thing with Matthew, and you almost have to understand the Matthew's, like, you, like Evan just said, Matthew's audience. Each of the evangelists, each of the gospel writers was writing for a different audience. And Matthew specifically was writing for a Jewish audience who would have been very familiar with Zechariah. And so Matthew could. He had that luxury. It's not like he's writing to the Greeks. It's not like he's writing to the Romans. He's writing specifically to the Jewish to a Jewish audience who's familiar with this. So he had that he had a little more flexibility there. The simplicity that Matthew quotes Zechariah with is not because he's dumbing it down for his audience, but rather he's placing incredible trust in his audience to know the rest of the context of Zechariah. So now let's look at how the prophet exhorts the daughter of Zion. Say to the daughter of Zion, there's this joy and this shouting. If Matthew doesn't include the shout and the joy from Zechariah. Where does the shout and joy arrive in the text? It arrives from the crowd. Right. The crowd is bringing the shout. The crowd is bringing the joy. Their hosannas, their their joy at Jesus arriving. So there is this uh, symbiotic relationship between the text and the people that is being illustrated by Matthew. One of the other points that Matthew makes, or that Luther makes about Matthew, is that where where Zechariah is inciting joy in the crowd, Matthew just simply says, say to the daughter of Zion. And Luther says, he does that to express how the joy and shouting will happen. So that no one expects a bodily joy, but rather a spiritual joy, a joy derived only from saying and hearing by faith of the heart. And this gets back into the discussion we, we had previously. You have a very poor guy 
on a borrowed donkey coming into Jerusalem, but there's going to be all this joy. And, and that's th- faith. It's the stark contrast. There's no bodily appearance in Christ that causes someone to have joy. It is entirely a spiritual revival that is present through the word coming to the people that's bringing about this joyful and glad response to the people. The next part that he covers is where the prophet Zechariah gives three titles, which is poor, righteous, and having salvation. Matthew only replaces all of that with the word gentle. And and so <clears throat> one of the things that Luther says is the, the, the point of this is to keep us close to the pure scripture that poor, righteous, and having salvation is 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 an abbreviation of gentle. That's that's the first point he's making that gets us to the true meaning of what what Zechariah was trying to get to. And he's highlighting that word poor is not describing someone who is lacking in money and property, but one who in his heart is miserable and humbled and one who finds no anger or haughtiness, but there's just a gentleness and a sympathy that we find in the fullness of Christ. Not a man who's just got empty pockets, but a man who is joining us in our empty souls. Luther says that the best place we can see the the poor nature of Christ is when he weeps over Jerusalem. And he brings this up over and over as we're talking through this, this Christ weeping over Jerusalem that's mentioned in Luke. Yeah, it's not an anger. It's not a vengefulness. Christ doesn't come in a righteous judgment. He comes in a righteous revelation of God's mercy. So, just uh, no, the next one is is righteous, right? And so, so that word's not there, but he takes time to explain righteous, and this is where I think there's an interesting interplay with his medieval scholastic theology and how to understand that word righteous in a sense of a good man versus righteous as a a godly revelation of what God's desire is for us. And this is something that we actually have trouble with, I think, in in modern day. Still today. Luther's time and still today, we get confused about what righteousness means. Right. And and Luther really hammers on this, this word righteous, that that righteousness, we tend to think when we hear that somebody is righteous, we tend to think of them as being well behaved. <laughs> this is the best way to put it that I can think of, or mm-hmm. you know that uh, that they're that they're right, that they they act rightly. That's sort of the way, at least when we talk about somebody being righteous, and actually a sort of not just not just well behaved, but at least what comes into my mind when if somebody says, "Oh yeah, he's really righteous." What pops into my mind is a self-righteousness. There's a haughtiness to it. Right. And so Luther says that he knows well that you are not godly. This is talking about God. God knows you're not godly. And so your godliness should not consist of your deeds, but of his grace and his gift, so that you are righteous or godly from him. This is where when we think of kind of that mantra of the Reformation, we are righteous by faith in Christ. And now he looks at Romans uh, 1, 17, and the righteous shall live by faith. This is, uh, and in Romans three twenty six, he alone is righteous and the justifier, that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, that the gospel is the gift and the promise of Christ. So for us to be righteous is not for us to be holy and do everything right. For us to be righteous is to receive the gift, to receive the promise of Christ. One of the things that Luther does here is he 
pretty freely swaps the word righteous and godly. And so he says, whenever you see God, whenever you see righteous in scripture, you can almost swap out the word godly, where this is somebody who trusts in God. This is somebody who trusts in God and God's promises. And so if you look at this, that they're, instead of behold, your king is coming righteous and having salvation, it's behold, your king is coming godly and having salvation. And in our own times, how you were describing that word righteous can have kind of a self righteousness, a haughtiness to it. It can describe someone who's arrogant. But if you describe someone as a godly man, I think that has a different tone to it. It does. It does. And that sort of better captures what I think Luther and scripture is getting at here is that this is, this is, uh, this is that, that there's a godliness that's coming to Jerusalem. And I mean, it is God himself, but, but there's that he's, he's coming godly and, and having salvation. And that's that having salvation is is another another great thing that's in here. And next thing Luther does, and he's going to do this as he's starting to finish up the postal, he ramps up with more invectiveness against the papists, as he calls them. Uh, we would call that the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> uh, but that whenever you find in Scripture the words God's righteousness, you are not to understand them of something that's self-existing, intrinsic in you as the papists and many of the Holy Fathers have erroneously held, of which you would otherwise be frightened. But know that according to the usage of Scripture, it means the grace and mercy of God that's poured into us through Christ. This intrinsic versus forensic justification is a hallmark of the conflict that still exists between Lutherans and Roman Catholic Church. So intrinsic righteousness would describe something that is in you, that's changed and transformed you, that you are behaving and conducting yourselves differently, and that is why you are saved. That's intrinsic righteousness. Forensic righteousness is going to describe that righteousness that is given to you in a declaration. You are still a sinner, but now forensically, God has declared you righteous. And Luther is making... uh, in this explanation of how he understands the word righteous, a fundamental division between himself and uh, St. Thomas of Aquinas. And the, this, this righteousness, it's God, like Evan just said, it's God's righteousness um, and through the grace and mercy of God poured into us through Christ so that we are considered godly and righteous before God. And that's, that's just, that's the, that's what, that's going back to Luther's trans, transformation into the evangelist And that's what we carry forward even to this day. So the next, and and I think this is going to be a spot we're going to finish on before our beer break, is how the evangelist calls the donkey a beast of burden. He's describing a kind of donkey. Um, The prophecy that is fulfilled is that there is a donkey that is capable of carrying uh, a burden. It's I not guess a special yeah, donkey trained yeah, for this exactly. purpose of carrying a royal king. It's more of a workhorse of a donkey. When when you go back through scripture and you're looking at especially the Old Testament, they're always talking about kings riding on donkeys, uh, Solomon going and looking for his donkey. There's the donkeys were were something that that were were you know trained to carry people. This is specifically not that. This is a beast of burden. That's how Matthew's going to describe it. Uh, They brought the donkey and they brought the colt. And we're going to get, especially in the secret meaning part, an explanation from Luther why there's two animals. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Spiritual meaning and all that. But we're going to finish before our beer break on just this emphasis that 
uh, a donkey, a beast of burden, is bringing the king forward. And, and that this is kind of describing our own sense of relationship to the law. And that if Christ comes and he fulfills the law, he relieves us of just being beasts of burden. All right, so so our beer break, it's a special beer break for us today. We have a beer that is provided by Eastern Market Brewing Company. It's their Punchki beer. Uh, We have the Raspberry Pastry Inspired Blonde Ale. Uh, Today that we're recording, the Eastern Market is having a a party. Um, We are recording our podcast on but down at the Eastern Market, they've got the Punchki beer on tap all day. They've got polka music. They've got a Punchki eating contest. Um, it's a, a fun time. You're going to miss it this year by the time you're listening to this yeah, podcast. This, <laughs> this event has already happened. But look forward in 2024. Uh, a little bit about the Michigan Brewery. This Punchki beer has become kind of well-known. It's a third year in a row, and this year they've doubled their production, and they still anticipate selling out. Uh, this version of beer is uh, got some uh, vanilla cream to it. It's They put 42 and a half pounds of fruit per barrel of beer to produce this raspberry flavor. This is not artificial flavoring that's produced in some New Jersey factory. Eastern Market has produced this beer with 42 and a half pounds of raspberry in every barrel of beer. Wow. It is a a delicious beer. And uh, just to let you know, Eastern Market Brewing Company, Detroit City Distillery, uh, wonderful Detroit brand that's bringing uh, to the heart of Detroit a sense of excitement and uh, brewing back to Detroit. So we've described the efforts that are made by the Eastern Market to produce this raspberry pastry blonde ale. What are your thoughts? Well, the, first of all, let's cover the color. The color is looks like a, a red grapefruit color. Uh, yeah, it looks like grapefruit juice. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, we had that we had that blueberry beer that I think neither Evan nor I was very fond of. But Maria liked. Maria liked it. <laughs> and this is this is better than that. Uh, this is this is actually and the, the, my first my first taste of it. Not not so into it, you know. It's it, sweet. It makes the inside of my cheeks kind of tart up. Yeah, yeah. But as as I work my way through it, I'm getting used to it. It's there's it's not so, much carbonation to it. It's n- kind of a flat beer. It is. There wasn't there wasn't any head to speak of mm-hmm. uh, when we poured it, but it's it's gotten a lot of aroma. Mm-hmm. You know, you really do taste the. The uh, the was it raspberries? Is that what they have? Yeah, yep, and they also produce a blueberry one. Yeah, which uh, we decided we, we we did not need to repeat the blueberry uh, stress of a couple episodes but, ago. So we went to the <laughs> raspberry punchki beer, and this is this is actually better. So this is uh, it has more of a citrus sort of uh, raspberries have more of a citrus where it cuts the the the, the bitterness a little bit. So it, I think it's a better fit for a beer. So. I'm enjoying it. How about you? All right. Great beer break. Eastern Market Brewing Company. Punchki beer. Raspberry pastry inspired blonde ale. Uh, 5% alcohol by volume. It's creamy. It's fruity. And it is donut-y. Donut-y. Yeah. Okay. I'll go with that. I didn't know that was a that was an adjective. That's how they, they have uh, three check marks on the label. And uh, check. It's creamy. Yep. Fruity? Check. Check. Donut-y? Check. <laughs> Check. <laughs> All right, getting back now to our 
look at the first Sunday in Advent sermon on Matthew chapter 21. This is kind of a verse-by-verse exposition of the text. Luther has completed his first part where he's largely just describing the text from the purpose of how it inspires and engenders faith in its hearers. Now the second part is going to be about good works, how we received Christ not only as a gift by faith, but also as an example through love toward our neighbor. This ordering of having faith first and example second is very much on purpose by Luther. He thinks that a preacher must always first emphasize the gift and the promise of Christ that's received by faith before they ever start talking about the example. One of the things that I really jumped out at me, and it actually comes to a, a discussion Evan and I had offline um, this next in paragraph number 40, uh, Luther asks, hey, you ask, perhaps what are the good works you are to do for your neighbor? The answer is they have no name, just as the good works of Christ does not have uh, the, does for you have no name. So the good works you do for your neighbor neither can nor should have any name. What's the danger of having a name to good works? And, and that's sort of what got uh, me thinking about this. It puts it in a box. It makes it neat. It makes it achievable. You, you do it. You finish it. You, you've gotten mastery of that. Now move on to the next thing. Right. And and putting bound, you know, it places boundaries and limits on on the good, good works. works. And, you know, so all of a sudden, the only good works are feeding the poor. The only good works are, while well, you're terrible to your wife or husband, you're terrible to, to your neighbors, you know, but I fed the poor. You know, I've checked that good book. Give it mark. a name and it becomes achievable. Keep it nameless. It's not meant to be anonymous and unknown to us. Don't give it a name because there's so much more that you can do than any name could ever describe. And this is something that we see very prevalent in the modern society is this desire to name everything. You know, they're they're placing labels on things that have never had labels placed on them before. And and we can see that 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 placing thing it does have that effect. You see that where people are labeled as X, Y, or Z and they they end up in a box that they can't break out of. They're not a person anymore. They're an object. Right, right. And it, it really is this labeling of good works and labeling of people. Is, it is terrible. You'll see this somewhat in the modern word of intersectionality, where someone is put in a box and now they have more of a voice. Or you put them in a box and they have less of a voice. Here's what Luther says about the naming of good works. He said, they have no name so that there may be no distinction made, that they may not be divided, so that you leave some undone. Rather, you should altogether give yourself up to your neighbor with all you have, just as Christ did not only pray or fast for you, uh, praying and fasting are not the works he did for you, but he gave himself wholly to you with prayer, fasting, all works, all suffering, so that there's nothing in him that is not yours and was not done for you. There's an allness to this, a completeness to this. And and then he'll speak about how every sermon that's about good works um, is leaving people uh, with the sense that everyone wants to be occupied with good works, but then they become misled by the direction of good works, thinking about the things that God has never even commanded. Right. They end up wanting, you know, because they've named good works, because they named good works in the Middle Ages, those good works became saying the rosary, building buildings, you know, pilgrimages, pilgrimages fasting. Yeah. 
decorating churches, endowing masses and vigils. All these things become prattling and howling in the church, as <laughs> Luther, Luther described it. Luther howling, prattling and howling. I guess I never thought of of somebody praying as being prattling and howling, but but he makes a great point, and it really does make it you know visceral. Um, but really, what Luther is trying to get to here is that by not placing the the work at the center, but placing the neighbor at the center. This is this is you know the good works are those that benefit others. That's what this is all about. That's a very important phrase you just said there, Mike. A good work is good because it's useful and it benefits and it helps the one for whom it is done. It's not good because of the label it matches. It's good because of the help it brings to your neighbor. One of the things that Luther draws a distinction between is a good work and a great work. And he actually places a good work as being better than a great work. The, the terms he goes, uh, uh, he goes. Um, there's a difference between good works and great, high, numerous, and beautiful works. When you throw a big stone a great distance, that is a great work. But for whom is that useful and good? And this is something that we fall into in a modern, where we look at great works that are happening. We honor people who do great works. And we let those people who do good works just sort of, yeah, whatever. You know, it's, yeah. there's this, this elevation. We still elevate great works over good works. And so just as a, a close on this good versus great, great is describing the person and what they've done. Good is describing the benefit to whom it is accomplished. Yeah. And so I could be great in something. But Luther wants to know what good have you done for another person with that? great gift you have. Right, right. Then we've got a couple sections where he talks about the papist work again, and he talks about the building of churches and towers and casting of bells and huge organs with 14 stops and 10 (laughs) ranks. And he goes, I can neither eat nor drink those things, neither support my wife nor child, neither keep my house nor my land. I can't feast with those things yeah, my eyes might see it. They might tickle my ears, but how does it help my children? And this is a hard one because Luther is preaching in churches and he's got the pulpit to stand in that comes as a benefit of the works that others have done. He and Karlstadt are going to have a little conflict um, uh, before this postal is written. Um, right about this time, actually, is where he and Karlstadt... Uh, so if this is 1521, and then he edits it again, 1523, 1525, and then he edits it a couple more times in the 1530s, but go back to 1521, then in the spring of 1522, he and Karlstadt have, Andreas Karlstadt, he was another professor in Wimberg, they have a tremendous argument about what to do with the rich churches in Wittenberg. You remember what Karlstadt does with the rich churches in Wittenberg? What I recall was that, well, I'll let you say it because I, I, my, mind, my memory is a little foggy on it. So, so Karlstadt uh, incites a riot. They, they tear down the statues. They uh, break the stained glass windows. And he takes all the art and all the visualness out of the churches because the stained glass, because the statues and all of those things were established as a part of endowments for masses to be said. They were all stained by the sin of false good works. 
And so yeah, so Luther comes into Wittenberg after all of this, and he preaches uh, these uh, series of sermons uh, when he comes back from hiding in the castle, and he shows up in Wittenberg, and he says to Karlstadt, uh, "You've moved too fast." Yeah, yeah, and too too far, too, too far. far. But in a way, Karlstadt is largely. I think building on kind of what Luther's commentating here Absolutely. On, on paragraph 46. So Luther and Karlstadt weren't that far away, but Luther had more of a pastor's heart and maybe Karlstadt saw something as bad. So get rid of it. Never mind how to, with patience intact, lead the people to see that move. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to keep going here. Uh, paragraph number 47. This is where Luther starts talking about our inability to do good works if we lack faith. And so it's, so, you know, we, if we do not believe that Christ has done everything for us and paid for our sins and secured grace and secured life and secured salvation, then, then, you know, our good works are, are, are just self-glorification. They're vanity. Um, there are attempts to try to bring about our own salvation. There are attempts to try to reach and attain our own glory. Yeah. So what Luther says is direct all you can do and your whole life to this end, that it be good. It is good when it is useful to other people and not to yourself. You do not need it since Christ has done and given for you all that you might seek and desire for yourself here and hereafter. And that is the critical point. If, if, there, if we don't have faith and we don't believe that Christ has already done and given for us everything, then, then you know this this these good works we're doing aren't being done out of joy. It's the 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 point is uh, the point I'm trying to I think Luther's driving to here is that that as we are fulfilled in faith in the good works of Christ and all the things Christ has done for us, we are full of that. We no longer need glorification by others. We no longer need to be, we, we have everything we need and we are free from those desires to, to go out and do actual good works. This is an explanation of the priesthood of all believers that he's providing here about how a man lives, he speaks, he acts, he hears, he suffers, and he dies. He does this in such a way that his child, his wife, um, his servants, the masters, government, all of these people are doing things that are benefits to another person. A Christian can naturally do good works, which can and should be done unceasingly at all times, in all places, toward all people. That is an egalitarianism of good works that was not happening in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. The Roman Catholic Church at that time made good works the prerogative of only those who were in the monasteries able to go on pilgrimages that were able to... uh, play organs and sing in special ways and wear special clothing and ring special bells and burn special incense and sprinkle special water. Not everyone could do that, so not everyone could do good works. Luther's saying, if that is your definition of good work, that is maybe beautiful, but it's a beautiful evil because it takes people away from how they can benefit and care for another person. Luther then gets into, you know, that God doesn't really need good works from us. And this is something that, at least for me, was, was really helpful. This idea that we don't do good works for God, right? The only, and Luther says, Luther, God is not served with works, but with faith. And, and so 
It's it's our belief in God that we serve God. That, that doesn't mean works are useless. No, but but what that does is our good works are not meant to serve God. Our good works are meant to serve our neighbor. And here he describes a miller's maid. If she believes, she does more good, accomplishes more, and trusts more than all the priests and monks do, because she brings uh, a sack from the donkey and serves to help someone else. And so this is a theme that he'll bring up a couple different times throughout his life. Um, not a couple, multiple times throughout his life that a person who is serving his neighbor is doing more than a person who is doing a great work to glorify himself. He gives the example of Christ. He goes back to Christ and he says, listen, Christ was content that he already ha- has God and is blessed by God. So with that knowledge that he has everything he needs from God to be loved by God is all he needs Christ was then free to re- he retained nothing for himself and he risked everything he has and is so that he may blot out sin, conquer death and hell and justify and save us, even his enemies, even those as he weeps over Jerusalem. Christ is looking at those that he knows will will always hate his work and he doesn't rally, rail against them. He doesn't get angry at them. He weeps for them. That image of Christ having everything secured in his relationship with his heavenly father so he is now free to love us is a great demonstration of what salvation accomplishes. It brings to us that same freedom. That our freedom is that we now have everything secured with our relationship with God through the work of Christ. And so we are now at liberty to do good works for others and not expect anything in return. There's no transaction that's necessary in a good work. It is entirely a work of charity because we're providing it to someone who is not able to pay us back. Right. Right. All right. So now um, Luther is going to speak a little bit more about this text from Zechariah. He says about this great joy that the prophet exhorts, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, and this righteousness and salvation for which the Savior and King is bringing. How does that look? In a Christian life, how do we rejoice? How do we shout? How is our righteousness and how is our salvation? The death of Christian believers is not death, but asleep. They neither see nor taste death, as Christ says here. So our death of a Christian is not the silencing of joy. The death of a Christian is not the silencing of the shout. The death of a Christian is actually a possibility for others to share with our joy and to share with our our hope of the resurrection. Okay. So I was looking at paragraph 52 there. In paragraph 53, uh, don't we all try to find in ourselves what we should await in faith from Christ? Um, We we look for ourselves, for our hope, for our confidence. Uh, But maybe we can just, instead of looking for it in ourselves, look for it in the hope and the joy we can bring to others. And this is a point that I really, uh, you know, I, I highlighted in my notes here, which is Luther says specifically, He's talking about these people are, who are seeking something within themselves. And, and this that is, intrinsicness. That, I want to see it in me. Right. I want to be good. I want to be good in me. And, and, and Luther says, you'll never find it there. You, you, and rather, you need to wait and pray for it and you know, for, for it to be coming from Christ to you. If, if you try to find it in yourself, you'll be sorely disappointed. <laughs> and, and for Lutherans, I think that sounds 
really like like oh yeah of course you know uh, you know, we know that we're we're evil from you know top to bottom but i came from a catholic background and and so to me that's something that really is and i think i think it's not just catholics i think baptists i think there's a lot of different faith traditions that look for good within themselves and and i that think experience that, that feeling that uplift of the soul and when that's absent yeah, it, it, it's hard. It, it's hard, and and so there's this 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 is something that I it's it's just a sentence that Luther had in here, but oh my goodness, that that's that speaks volumes. They want to find in themselves what they should have waited to receive from Christ. Right. You want to find in yourself your righteousness. You want to find in yourself your salvation. But he says, wait for that and receive it from Christ. And I, I would I would argue that although this is foundational Lutheran theology. I wouldn't count on everybody sitting in the pews being on board with that. You know, that is something because these other faiths, these other faith messages are out in the world we live in, and they sort of, through osmosis, seep into us, even though we, we might not want it. So that balance uh, I was talking about in the beginning between intrinsic righteousness and forensic righteousness that's how we're going to close this section. Uh, the next episode is now going to go to the history of the secret meaning, the allegory that Luther is going to find, encouraging us to imagine as we read Matthew, as we read Zechariah, what it accomplishes for our own spiritual lives. This has been episode 70 of Grace on Tap. We have been looking at the winter postals, the first Sunday in Advent, Matthew chapter 21. We will continue with that with our next episode. And uh, I haven't eaten a punchki today yet, but I did enjoy our punchki beer. Cheers. <laughs>